Yes. Well, good morning and welcome. Glad you're here. Let's turn our Bibles over to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 7 and look at the letter that Jesus had inspired or shared his heart with John. He penned it down and would be sending this and six other letters to a number of churches that were located in what we would know as modern-day Turkey, Northern Asia Minor. And to each of those churches, Jesus had very um, specific things to say. And um, each of these churches have an interesting correlation to a period um, of church history. Um, there's just something unique that he has to say about these churches, observations about these churches that, like, hey, that, that seems to correlate to this particular point in time in church history. And so Ephesus really spoke to that period in church history from around 33 AD to about 100 AD, the apostolic era from the time the apostles began to follow Jesus through the book of Acts until um, their death. Smyrna, the second and third century, um, the post-apostolic era when the church really began to be crushed under persecution. Um, and the words that Jesus had to say to that church itself, were, they were going through it, and he wanted to give them encouragement, but also there would be that time in church history, the second and third period, that that would correlate to. Pergamos, the compromising church, 313 AD to 600 AD, it seems to fit that time period when the church began to get away from the word of God. They began to combine Christian theology with pagan philosophy, and they began to establish a, a spiritual hierarchy over the people as well. Thyatira, the corrupted church, uh, speaks to the period of time from around 600 to 1500 AD. We know that as the Middle Ages, a period of time when we see the development of the, the Roman Catholic system, Sardis, the lifeless church, mid-1500 to like 1600, the, the Reformation period when indeed there was a time needed to reform, a time period that followed 900 years of papal rule, idol worship, the word of God being chained down to pulpits, not free to be interpreted and expressed by individuals. But now God would raise up a man, Martin Luther, in that period, and he would begin to bring reform and bring people back to the Word of God. And as we know, we have freedom here to study God's Word. We're going to be built up. Life is going to be imparted to us. And as a result, great cathedrals were built all around Europe. Um, but with time, of course, um, that movement that began in name and uh, uh, power would only be name only. And they would lose their power as they began to get away from the Lord and uh, the reality of the Protestant movement it, uh, well, it began to fade. And we could look back and see those cathedrals that were built to honor and house people who were just being built up and being made alive by studying the Word of God. And those cathedrals today, almost about 90% of them are mosques and museums all throughout Europe. Can't deny that. But then we come to the Church of Philadelphia, which speaks to um, an interesting time. And in each of these letters, I don't believe that Jesus has the whole church in mind as he gives his concerns. I believe there's always a group that he's concerned about, and he identifies that. And I believe there's always been a remnant, a, a remnant of faithful people. In the Church of Philadelphia, it speaks to a, a remnant of faithful people who would be faithful in the end of the age. Hear me, at a period of time when the church has experienced the rise of denominationalism, these churches that grew and birthed, we would identify them as, look at those mainstream denominations, even at the turn of our century, moving into the 30s and 40s and 50s, go out, look at the life of these denominations around the world. But... At the end of the age, the Church of Philadelphia speaks of a remnant of people. A remnant. A feeble, faithful. Feeble, faithful people in the church at a time, at a period, where you would say denominationalism has died. And I believe that we are here. What does he have to say? Verse 7, to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy. He who is true, he who has the key of David, 
He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You, uh, you feeble faithful, you have also kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Ah, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And as he closes off each letter to each church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. The Church of Philadelphia is known as the brother of the city of brotherly love. Back in about 189 BC, the emperor, the, the leader, the founder of the city, really, you means. Number two, he had a brother, Attalus, who had a lot of fame in that area, and he had passed away. And you means, too, the second, he, he loved his brother so much that he wanted to keep the memory of his brother alive. And so he had coins minted with his brother's name on the different shields and symbols around Philadelphia. They would put his brother's name and people began to say the, the love that he has his, for his brother, it's infectious. And with time, they began to call that community, that particular city, Philadelphos. And it was this Phileo, love, but it was the brother's love that was infectious among the people, and it was just known as a loving community. Most Christians know that brotherly love should mark our lives as the body of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, Paul would say to the church, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But as Christians, we are also to love those outside the body of Christ. Jesus would even say in Luke 28, or Luke 6, verse 28, that we are to love our enemies. And that would include, would it not, those that are outside the church. We are to love the lost as well. Loving the lost means that we should seek to reach non-believers with the gospel. And Jesus recognizes that, that there are some within this church at this particular time and place that are just that. There's, there's even an open door that he has set before them because he sees that about them. Philadelphia was also labeled as the Little Athens. Athens was like the pagan city of pagan cities. But Philadelphia had its shrines to the pagan gods. Many of them were worshipped by the followers, the citizens. It was a pagan, dark, spiritual place. Spiritually, the city was lost and in need of the gospel. Philadelphia was also a, a city that was on a main route, a main route that led to Rome. Many called the city the gateway to the east as a result. And so the Lord had thus strategically placed this congregation, this church, on a very a great place to get the gospel to spread to the known world. One of the major problems with that location was that it was on a major fault, a geographical fault line. In 17 BC, secular historian talks about this major earthquake that pretty much leveled that city. It leveled Sardis and 10 other cities. And most of the inhabitants of Philadelphia ran to the hills, literally. They ran to the hills for safety, they circled their wagons in self-preservation and safety. And they lived there so long, away from the ruins, away from those 
lives who, well, their world had come crashing down on them and they were great need, but they ran in their self-preservation and circled their wagons and lived in the hilly area so long and dug into the trenches so deep that they called it the burnt area. Interesting. But there was a remnant still that stayed in the city. And they were committed to rebuilding the city. They were committed to sacrificing their personal security and comfort in order to benefit others. We apply that today. Every single one of us, we all experience ground-shaking circumstances in our life. In the past, maybe currently, and we will in the future. Things happen that rock our world. Circumstances that do seem to send many Christians running for the hills and circling their personal wagons, living on the fringe of self-preservation and personal comfort while a world around them lies in spiritual ruins. But thankfully, God always has a remnant. Hopefully, you are that remnant today. Another source of instability with this church was not just the ground that was shaking, but it was the opposition. Scholars believe that there was a large Jewish population in Philadelphia and that the church was made up of mostly converted Jews. But the Jews that did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah and did not become part of the church far outnumbered the church. The synagogue of Satan that Jesus was aware of that was posing them. It was outside forces that were pressing in and pressuring them and bringing instability into their world. What does Jesus have to say? What is the word that Jesus has to say to what I've labeled this sermon? The feeble faithful. Well, to the angel, the leader of the church of Philadelphia, these things says, he who is holy and he who is true. If we were to read through these churches and be at the sixth one as we are and Go, okay, let's just look at all of the concerns that Jesus has for the church. And let's, let's identify with that. Is there ever a time that we have waned, waned, excuse me, in our love for Jesus Christ? Yes, we have. I can identify with that. Is there ever a time that I have allowed myself to compromise? Yes, I, 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 I can say I have. Is there ever a time I've allowed corruption in? Is there ever a time when I, I might, someone might look at me and go, where's the life of God, Lance? Is there a time when I have, in name only, looked alive, but in my personal walk with Jesus, not so alive? And I could go through and personally identify with all of the concerns that Jesus has penned down about the church. If I'm humble enough and honest enough before you as I have been right now, I would confess yes and amen, guilty as charged. But to those churches... He is holy. What does that mean? He is the one that is set apart from all of that. He has never waned in his love towards us. He has never let the world influence him. He has never compromised on his commitment to the Father or to us. And I can go through the list. Amen? So the one that's holy. But he's also true. Why is that important? Because oftentimes we see Christians in the body of Christ running for the hills. What are they chasing? Something that has a greater draw on them than God. And I'm sure that many of the feeble faithful would look around and say, where's brother such or sister such and such? And they could see that they've ran after something that is not so true. That it's got a bling. I think it will bring them security or safety. And be the something that would just fill that void. But that is a lie. When you run away from Jesus Christ, you are running away from truth. He is the way, the, and the life. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And he just wants them to remember who he is, who they've been saved by, who they are to identify with. The one that remained faithful, set apart from all of what they caved in as the church. And as it relates to all of the other foreign gods or all of the other idols that they might worship, and ours might not be like 
a Roman God or a Greek God, but we can worship things that are not God himself, material things. And to the believers that he so loves and has given his life for, he looks at them and he goes, I just want to remind you who I am, who is speaking. The one who is holy, the one who is true. To the feeble faithful, he would say, just let's do a comparison here. You guys, you just are sinful. He is holy. We at times are deceitful. He is always true. We are weak at times, but he is ever strong. That's who is addressing us today. He also is the one that has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And he's like, he's very perceptive. I, 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 I know your work. See. I have even, because of that, set an open door before you that no man can shut. Keys. In chapter 1, verse 8, it said that he has the keys of death and Hades. And we noted that when keys are used as a reference, it's speaking of authority. It's speaking of the one that has the right, the one that has earned the right to something. The keys of death would be that he has authority over death because he has alone conquered death, victorious over death. The keys to David... What's that mean? When the days of David, when he is a king, they would have certain celebrations where they would want to recognize the king, parades, certain ceremonies. And once the king would be arraigned, they would take what they would see as the symbol. It was the key to the city. And they would put it on a, a rope or a tassel, and they would swing that over the shoulder of the king. And the king would walk around, basically... And in a visible de demonstration, he is saying that the key to the kingdom, all of the authority of the kingdom, all of the resources of the kingdom, all of the decision-making in the future for the kingdom, all that is represented over the kingdom, even the military, the treasures, the future, has been entrusted to me. I am supreme authority. That's the picture. Jesus is saying here, church, listen, remember, I am the one that has the keys to the riches and the treasures. Of everything related to my Father, his kingdom, and what we do spiritually and eternity in the life of my followers and of the church. Ephesians 1 talks about the riches of his grace talks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Colossians 2 speaks about understanding the, the riches involving the knowledge and the mystery of God. Ephesians 3 again talks about the unsearchable riches of God. So the list goes on. We're talking about all the treasures of salvation, all of the, the riches of eternal life. Jesus has the keys to these doors, doors that... He alone opens and shuts and shuts and no one opens. Why does he open these doors? He opens these doors so that we might personally benefit from his riches and then share those riches with others. When I was in high school, I got, I got hired by a grocery store by the name of Market Basket. I just aged myself. <laughs> Market Basket. I was 15 years old, and they were bringing in young ones and training us, and I got hired. I was so excited. And I watched as they, 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 they were trying to explain who the leaders of the store were, and I noticed there were these certain guys that carried themselves a little bit different, and they were called key carriers. And there were some that made it very office, obvious. You'd walk by them, they'd be like flinging the key, kind of like rattling the saber, you know. They wanted you to know they had the authority. They had something on you. And I worked there for a few years, and I, I worked my way up. And I remember the day that I got my own set of keys. You ask, did it go to your head? Absolutely. <laughs> those young guys, man, they came around. I just jiggled those keys and whatnot. But those keys gave me access to particular areas that no one else can go. One was just the, the office. And in the office was a, was a safe where we kept all of our money. That's where we 
filled our cash drawers. That's where we kept payroll and payroll checks, time cards. The resources in that office that I had the keys to, it, 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 it really it held a bunch of resources that were a great benefit to those people. I also had keys to these special storerooms that no one else can get in, the higher-valued inventory. I had those keys. But I was the one that would allow people to go in, and, and those resources would be brought out. And that was for the benefit of the store. It was for the benefit of the movement, to advance the movement. And, and I had the keys. Lori and I we were younger. Our girls were little girls. We were invited to go up to a camp for a week and, and just hang out and maybe teach, whatever. My friend was the camp leader. When I got there, he's like, Lance, you're going to love this camp. It was up in the mountains, and they had a lot of resources. So they had go-kart tracks. They had all, you know, all kinds of stuff for kids. And then he says, um, I'm going to put your name on a list, and it gives you a key that gives you access to the go-karts, the arcade, and most of all, the snack shack. <laughs> and he goes, if you have that key, you can take whatever you want for you and your family, and you can bless them. Imagine how cool dad was that week. <laughs> what if you had the keys to Fort Knox? What if someone said, here's the keys to Fort Knox? Think of the resources behind those doors. It's all, it's all yours. However it, you, you deem it could benefit you, absolutely, it's yours. That's why we give you the keys. And if you had the ability to just share those resources with anyone that you knew needed that resource, think of how awesome that would be. Think of what a privilege that would be. You would be completely riveted on that privilege. I'm sure it would consume your life. It would be all about the resources that you have, the riches that you have that, that would bless you and bless others. Well, we have something far greater than that. Our Lord and Savior has opened up the door to his kingdom. And he said, would you please share these riches with others? Would you please benefit, far outweighing any other door we'll ever walk through on this earth, would you please walk through the door of my kingdom and personally experience all of the riches of my kingdom, beginning with salvation lands? Yeah. And it's not just for you. I've opened a door of ministry so you can share that with others. An open door in the New Testament speaks of that opportunity to minister. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul let the church know that he's not going to see them right away because an effective door had opened up for him in Ephesus. Colossians 4.3, he was asking the church to pray for him that an open door, that, that, that God would open up a door to him that he would be able to speak and share the mysteries of Christ. Jesus not only opens the doors to minister, but he gives us the means to minister. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1, 2, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into his ministry. He has the key. He opens the door. He, he grants the privilege. He enables. And when it's all over, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, my girls were all young. I, I was bound and determined to make them board members. Not of a church, not of a corporation, but they will learn how to snowboard, skateboard, and surf, just like their daddy. And they all do. Started with skateboards. And I remember with Kayla specifically, I get this long skateboard. She's a little girl. She didn't know anything about it. And I put her on it. And I said, what do you want to do? And so she, she, I didn't put her on it. I just let her walk up. To, she lays on her belly. She lays on it. She starts pushing like her hands like she's a turtle. She moves down the driveway. I'm like, no, 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 we'll have none of that. <laughs> so I went over there, and I, and, I, and I stood her up, and I put her on the skateboard in front of me. I put my foot behind her. I put my arms around her, and I pushed, 
and I steered. I put her on it, I held her, I pushed, and I steered. And when we were done, I praised her for how well she skated. Church, I hope you see yourself honestly that way before your God. As we skate along through life, skate along through marriage, skate along as a church, understand something. He sees us. Verse 8, I know your works. Then he creates an opportunity to step into our lives and assist us. See, I have set before you an open door. And then he sees our feebleness and our limitations. Oh, I see you have a little strength. And then he sees our obedience and our dependence and our faithfulness. Oh, yeah, you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. He sees that with the feeble that are faithful. He's saying all of this because he desires to assist us. He wants to assist the feeble that are faithful. So it doesn't matter where you find yourself today as a follower of Christ. You may today say, yeah, Lance, my world is rocked. It's fallen apart, earth-shattering stuff. I feel small, I feel weak, I feel limited. Understand that Jesus looks at his people and he always sees potential. He always sees opportunity in his community of feeble that are faithful. The Church of Philadelphia had a little power. Micros dynamis in the Greek speaks of a small amount of resources and ability. It had nothing like the riches and the influence of its neighbor Laodicea, nor did it have a rich history and heritage like Ephesus. Neither did it have the great reputation of Sardis, nor the, the fame and the fortune of Smyrna. Small, broken, insignificant, poor, overlooked. The church in Philadelphia would have concluded that it had a small capacity, if any. But Jesus looked at them through a different lens. He looked at them not through their inability, but he looked at them through his ability. Being a big church doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be an effective church. God often uses limitations of individuals and limitations of churches as a platform to launch crazy, amazing works. He can do powerful things through the feeble that are faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.26, For you see your calling, brethren, then not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are what? That no flesh would glory in his presence. They might have even heard this. Oh, he recognizes that we have a little power and there a lot of people in the church, the feeble faithful, might be so feeble that they emphasize the little. But Jesus would say that same phrase and look at the feeble faithful and he would recognize the power because it's his power. A church's vision should not be determined by the size of the congregation. It should not be determined by the limitations of its location or any kind of restrictions of a budget or the current state of their circumstances. A church's vision should be based on the power and the vision of their God. God who is infinite and magnificent and all-powerful. And what is true for the congregation is true for the individual believer. You might be at that place in your life as a child of God where you feel small, where you feel insignificant, feeble. 
overlooked, overwhelmed. Maybe you're like, I got health challenges. I, I got limited resources. Maybe you're at a place in life where your circumstances have you feeling like you cannot be effective. Understand again, God is not limited by our circumstances. He can use our limitations as platforms to do amazing things that will bring glory to him. He does powerful things through feeble that are faithful. So your vision moving forward, no matter where you are right now, should not be based on any of your limitations, any of your limited resources, or your current circumstances. Instead, your vision for moving forward should be based on the power of your God and his plan for your life, his infinite resources, his might, his power, his assistance. The doors that he has set before you right now are opportunities he has entrusted to you right now. Amen. I've missed that, Lee. Thank you. God bless you. Our part is to trust him. Trust his plan. Trust his timing. Trust his way. Trust his push. Trust where he aims. Trust him as the doorkeeper of our life. God opens and closes doors according to his sovereign will and infinite wisdom. When God closes doors of opportunity, he doesn't close them to mess with us or frustrate us or exasperate us or discourage us. He doesn't close doors because he's done with us. He closes doors to open new ones. This truth should reassure us because we can trust in a God who knows us better than ourselves, who knows our tomorrow today, who knows what he is doing and why he is doing it, even when we as infinite or as finite human beings struggle to understand. We can trust in the God who knows our work, who knows our limitations, who knows our circumstances. And that God who knows our work and knows our limitations and knows our circumstances is saying, here's a door. I want to step in and I want to assist. It's difficult to trust, and it's difficult to stay patient because we like to be in charge of our own lives. Can I hear an amen by that? Bud? Yeah. First service was a little more reluctant. We like to be the doorkeepers of our life, if we're honest. We like to plan and execute things our way, our time as we see fit. Question. Who is more qualified to make decisions regarding his work in our life, God or us? Yeah. Again, we are sinful. He is holy. We are deceitful. He is true. We are weak. He's all-powerful. So when it comes to the course of our life, he's got it. If this relates to you this morning... May you embrace this reality. The greatness of God will always outweigh any circumstance of your life. If you can embrace that reality, you can accept the door and doors that God closes and walk through the doors that he opens with great confidence and reassurance. Nine, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I'll, I'll make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you. Again, the Jews that opposed and persecuted the Christians because the feeble and the faithful, in verse 8, had kept his word and refused to deny his name. They were persecuted. They were opposed. If you're being persecuted or opposed today, living in America as a Christian, thank Jesus for that. That means that you're keeping his word. That means you're remaining faithful to him. 
But at the same time, because they were faithful in their feebleness, it poised them to be used by God in amazing ways. Such amazing ways that they would see God cause their adversaries to be humbled before them in verse 9. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say any description. Maybe it's much like what God did with a man by the name of Saul who was persecuting the church on the way to Damascus and Jesus stepped in and Saul was converted. It could be just talking about the faithfulness of God doing the continued work through that open door that he has set before them and it would lead to conversion of their opponents. Don't know. <coughs> Never underestimate the importance of keeping God's word. Keeping God's word. This is not solely talking about being a caretaker of God's word, although that is important. God has definitely given us his word to be good stewards of his word, but as stewards we must know it, be devoted to it, learn it, but to keep it speaks of living it out, applying it. People that oppose Christians and Christianity do not keep God's word. Their opponents were keeping the word of Judaism. Today, our opponents are keeping the word of socialism, of secularism, or of what I coined a few years back, asceticism. What is that? I feel it, so it is. I said it, so it is. It speaks of my truth, my word, my knowledge. Isceticism. I'm going to make a shirt that says that one of these days. When people keep the word of Karl Marx, it perpetuates the ideology of Karl Marx. When people keep the word of Sigmund Freud, it perpetuates the ideology of Sigmund Freud. When people keep the word of Darwin, it perpetuates the ideology of Darwinism. Karl Marx wrote his manifesto on communism in 1848, but it's currently forming culture. It's currently forming countries today because people are continuing to keep the word of Karl Marx today. Social medias today totally understand this. They understand this concept and are shaping culture by feeding specific ideologies that promote their secular pagan views. The difference with Christianity is that we believe in a truth that is outside of ourself, truth that is superior to us, truth that is superior to man, truth that is superior to Marx or Freud or Darwin, truth that is superior to anything the social media companies are peddling on an ongoing basis every day. We believe in superior knowledge. We believe in superior wisdom. And we keep that. We keep God's truth. We keep God's knowledge. We keep the wisdom of God. My personal opinion is not more superior than your personal opinion. Your personal opinion is not more superior than mine. But God's is superior to all of ours. 1 Corinthians 1.25 in the NIV says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. There are three levels of knowledge. Explicit knowledge, number one. Straightforward information that is tangible. You're able to write it down. It can be documented. It can be read. It can be interpreted. Like this morning we say, the Bible says thus. That is explicit knowledge. And there's tacit knowledge. This is knowledge that comes from experience. Like the person that learned Marxism by living in Cuba or living in Russia under the rule and the reign and the philosophy and the ideology of Marxism. There's a difference between the person who has simply read Marx's manifesto on communism and the Cuban or the Russian that has experienced it and has fled as a result. Explicit knowledge, tacit knowledge. And then implicit knowledge. That's the application of knowledge. 
That's the living it out. That's the keeping it that Jesus has honed in with his church, the feeble that are faithful. Jesus saw the feeble faithful as keepers of the word. They were living it out. And he honors that and he works through that. And so if the Bible teaches that life is in the womb, then we, 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 we not only teach that, but we live that out. We don't abort babies. Amen? Amen. If the Bible teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman, then we keep that. We live that out by marrying men to women. Amen. Less of an amen, but I'm saying amen. amen. If the Bible says that sex is a gift from God to be practiced between one man and one woman, the confines of a marriage, then we keep that word by living that out. The Bible says we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We keep that word. The Bible says that we are to forgive like he has forgiven us. We are to live that out. And I can go through. What does it mean to keep the word? Live it out. Hear me. Why was Jesus so impressed that they kept his word? Because Jesus loved the lost in Philadelphia as much as the people that were faithful. And he knew that if they will live it out, that is what will impact the culture that is lost. As long as you're on this planet, God would look at you, love you, and passionately desire to use you. Even if you circled the wagons, and as the world came crushing down, you ran for the hills, self-preservation was driving you, he still loves you and wants to grace you and use you. He wants you to keep his word, to bring him glory, to bring him honor. It will bless you. You might keep your own word, limited. You might keep the word of some other philosopher, limited. But if you keep his word, his word will be everything that is designed to be. It will wash you. It will cleanse you. It will renew your mind. It will bring you peace that passes understanding. And that word that you take in as you live it out will impact the people around you. That's what he says. Because you've kept my command... To persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. We'll get to that in chapter 4. I can't wait. We're about to go to Israel. I cannot wait to teach this in Israel. I, I cannot wait to stand overlooking the valley of Megiddo. And open up chapter 19. We're going to be so far ahead of you guys here. You're going to be stuck in chapter 4. <laughs> we're going to be standing there. I'm going to go, told you, church, listen up, man. And we're going to talk about this, this day where Jesus is coming back for us. Who? You persevered. He sees the pushback of our culture. Persevere. This is the promise. This is the motivation. I see, I know. I'm still going to continue open doors, but I am coming back. Amen. I'm coming back. And you're not going to go through the hour. You're not going to go through the tribulation, Revelation 6 through 19. You're just not. I'm going to save you from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. I'll talk all about the rapture, prayerfully before we're raptured. See the clock back there? You can turn around. One, zero. Boom. <laughs> That'd be great to get to heaven. He's like, you know, I just wanted to humor the guys in La Habra and the girls in La Habra. I was, I was following their clock. <laughs> it was the second service. First service wasn't awake, but the second service was awake. <laughs> and it hit zero. And I'm like, Gabriel, blow now. <laughs> and there wasn't one person left. 
So hold fast. Let's stand. I'll finish if you stand. You know that. Hold fast what you have, verse 11, that no one may take your crown. What's that? What's that mean? Persevere. Stay faithful. Stay confident in me. Stay confident in my words. Stay confident in my mission, and I will reward you. He who overcomes. There's some things to overcome, folks. I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Remain faithful in this shaky, unstable world that's falling apart all around you because you're going somewhere that doesn't. It's not shaky. It's not unstable. It's not falling apart. It's eternal, and you're going to be there forever and ever with me. Amen. So persevere is what he's saying. Amen. And you'll be stable. I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of my city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. We'll read about that, 1920 in there. And I'll write my name on him. It's almost as if this, it's almost as if, as if he knows that being a follower of his in this fallen world, you're tempted to take on the identity of this world. He's like, no, 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 no. There's a world to come in. That's who you are. Your citizenship is in heaven. Amen. And you're mine. I bought you with a price. We run around and we're all proud of our last name. We're the cooks. <laughs> what, we got a couple of you know, centuries of that? I don't even know how far back I can brag about the cooks. You know how much is worthy of bragging about the cooks? I could brag a whole lot about the cooks of Christians. We're the family of God. I really can't wait to be in heaven with you guys. I, I'm serious, man. I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm just going to be good. Labra, I told you so. <laughs> and I never stop telling you so. And I, I pray we have such a long embrace, and, and we're like fighting each other to get to the front of the worship services. Uh, there's not going to be, I had to drop my kid off at child care, so I'm late. No, 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 you were sleeping in again. Ain't no sleeping in. All these, like, excuses that keep us from each other and keep us from going deeper, gone. We're going to be all out. I might see some of you raise your hands and worship Jesus for the first time. And I'm going to be like, who's that? Some spouses might go, I cannot believe this guy. Why did I say guy? Girl, the spouse. Wednesday night changed my life. I walked into some of the Wise Fellowship, and I go, did you guys hear what happened at your church last night? And they're like, no, what happened? <laughs> your mind usually goes to something bad. I says, oh. I wept with over 40, 45 people who celebrated new birth in baptismal waters. There was a day in our early days when we had baptism. Everybody was there. I don't know if they were there for the hot dogs or the baptism, but they were there. Church, I love what the Lord's doing here. I believe it's fresh. I believe it's alive. And I'm so just fortunate to be part of it. But the culture of a church, God working in our midst, when it's something attractive and alive, people want to be part of it. It doesn't just happen. It happens through our, our obedience and our surrender. And look, room filled up with people carrying Bibles and, and worshiping God. We do our part. And I really believe this needs to be added to this church. If you have a family member that you know and you love, and they have a birthday coming, prayerfully you're like, excited about them and their birth and you're excited about their life and you don't want to miss out on the, the song and the cake. I don't, you don't want to miss out on the celebration. If you have a family member that you're really a family member with, I think that's interesting. You might tell me that your dad has a birthday. But I, I'm not like, oh, i got to be at that birthday party, but my dad's or my mom's. Or, family does that. It's, it's, a, it's an indicator that you're, 
your life as that family, that you're connected to that family. And I really believe we need to work on this. I do. I believe every time you hear there's a, there's a baptism here, I think you should just well up with excitement. We have another family member? We have somebody celebrating a birthday? And I said in the first service, and I mean this, I'm going to do my part to work on this. I just think it's something we need to, 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 to keep the joy well done. Because we don't do a bunch of altar calls here, often because we don't have the time. But as we are praying, these people are saying they're accepting Jesus here. And I hear you praying and following my prayer. And, and, and we want to celebrate that. Amen? Amen. And I don't know how. I said, we'll either move chairs out of the way and build a pool right here. And, and, and even then, it's a trip to be doing baptisms and watch people walk out because it's the time that we walk out because it's baptisms. No. We might get a portable doughboy and start bringing it to people's houses and show up at your house and say, you know what? We're doing church baptisms in your front yard. You can sit down or not and hang out with us. Amen? Amen? All right. Lord. If you're here, or online, you've never accepted Jesus and you'd like to this morning. Tell him. <laughs> He's listening. The Bible says we're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin separates us from God. And right now, Jesus wants to remove that sin from your life and save you. If that's you, invite him. Say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. Who are you inviting in? God, who took on flesh, died on a cross, was buried and rose from the dead. So tell him you believe that about him. Say, man, I believe you're God. I believe you died on that cross for me. Ask him now to come in, into your life and save you, forgive you. Ask him to fill you with his spirit. Ask him to fill you with love for him, for his word, for the body of Christ, for the lost. Ask him right now. He'll do it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all those testimonies on Wednesday night. It changed my life. I pray that more even today will come forward and let us know, man, I gave my life to Jesus. How do I follow him? We love you. Love what you're doing in your church. Can't wait till you take us home. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.